welcome to At the Bar, a spirited conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. I'm Inez Stepman from the Independent Women's Forum, here with my colleague, Jennifer Braceris from Independent Women's Law Center. And today we're talking about President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. And joining us to discuss the political and legal controversies surrounding this sweeping action is May Davis Mailman, Senior Fellow with Independent Women's Law Center. Hey, May. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's a fun one. Yeah, you've written a lot about this um, from a policy standpoint as well as um, from a legal standpoint. And I know you've been involved in some of the legal challenges to the program. Um, why don't you start just by giving us a little bit of background on the program um, and how and why it was implemented, the policy aspect, not the law? Yeah, so I was in the White House when this first started, uh, which is a pandemic forced everyone into their homes and there were real serious uh, questions in the White House about what was going to happen to the economy. Were we going to tank it so that it could never recover? Um, and one of the reasons why that might happen is if no one could pay their student loans or tried to pay off their student loans and got evicted from their houses, just total chaos. So did a temporary pause on student loans uh, during the like 15 days to slow the spread uh, that is right. ongoing today. Then <laughs> Congress took, uh, took it up and said, you know what, we're going to pause student loans for a while. Great. Well, then after that Congress extension ended, it was right before the elections. So President Trump extended the pause again. And then all of a sudden it was, you know, we can't pause it anymore. So President Biden said, OK, I'm going to just cancel student loans. He had run on canceling student loans. Um, and so the program was, you know, not a full cancellation, but up to $20,000 um, if you are uh, a Pell Grant recipient, so uh, sort of low income, or at least were low income when you went to college, hmm. and then up to $10,000 for people who are definitely middle class, so up to $125,000 of income. Uh, this, this is extremely sweeping. Uh, 26 million borrowers have already applied for student loan cancellation. 16 of those million have been approved. I don't know exactly who hasn't been approved. Maybe they just never get to it yet. Um, <laughs> yes. And so this has been recently heard by the Supreme Court. I have a quick question, though. When he campaigned on um, forgiving student loan debt, were his campaign promises as you recall, explicitly related to COVID or was it just a general Elizabeth Warren, like this is onerous and we need to get rid of this debt? It was definitely not related to COVID. And okay. even when he was announcing the cancellation, like a few months ago, he still really didn't link it to COVID. That has been brought up by a lot of the litigants, which is just, I feel like canceling student loans because I don't like student loans. Well, nobody likes student loans. And that has continued to be, <laughs> his uh his pitch not just during the campaign but still now but like the lawyers came in and kind of put some covid rationale behind it right okay we'll get to that later but that that is why i ask well sticking with the policy for a moment um you know there's this this line out there from conservatives that i actually find very unhelpful on this and that's that's this um 
idea that essentially you sign on the dotted line, um, which is true. Uh, and, and also focusing on the cost. So this, I mean, this plan has been scored anywhere from 300 billion to $1 trillion of loan debt. So it's it's very, um, it's all over the place, depending on how you estimate it. It's really hard to predict how many people will apply, how many people qualify. Um, but I, I don't find those, those particularly convincing in a lot of ways, but th you, you've laid out some other reasons to be against a student loan forgiveness. Um, and, and some of those might be like, you know, who are the beneficiaries versus who's paying into this program, right? Um, so what are some of the other reasons besides debt or personal responsibility um, that, that this is a bad idea? Yeah, well, I think uh, this argument has been made from pri primarily people on the left, I think, which is that uh, student loan forgiveness is regressive in that it takes money from poor people and gives it to rich people. So people with bachelor's degrees earn 84% more than people uh, with just high school diplomas. And that doesn't count benefits. That doesn't count a lot of things uh, that actually would make, I think, that 84% number higher. A third of the student debt is owned by the wealthiest 20% of people versus only 8% is owned by the bottom 20%. So every time we're giving out money, we're primarily benefiting people who don't need the benefit. Um, I think there's also an unfairness argument, which is people really structured their lives around the fact that you have to pay off your loans. So they didn't go to the school of their dreams because you know they wanted to be reasonable. They didn't go to school at all. So you've taken everybody's decisions and you've just said, ha ha, we don't care. And I think, you know, people expect for the government to, to, to treat them fairly, to treat their expectations fairly. Um, and I think the other thing that we're seeing currently is that you just give people a bunch of money and it exacerbates inflation. Sometimes it's okay to exacerbate inflation. I think right at the beginning of COVID, we wanted to put money in people's pockets to keep the economy going. Now that we're having an inflation crisis, that's probably not the time to just line people's pockets with money. And then uh, the final reason is that the cost of college tuition is out of control, just totally insane. Anyone who's seen like a private college tuition is... It's like, who can afford this? I'm paying two of them right now. <laughs> I, I, no middle class person can actually afford yeah. to just straight up pay for private college. Um, and the more that we tell students it's okay to take out student loans, like, just don't worry about it, things will work out. The higher those tuition uh, costs grow, because students kind of don't care. They, they think that it'll work out either. It'll be forgiven or there'll be some sort of program. So we have to really change that mentality, which is students have to say, I'm not paying that. And then the, the schools won't uh, raise their tuition as much. This, this is in part why um, the personal responsibility argument, while it's true, doesn't strike me as particularly convincing to a lot of people. Because yes, we know that like 18 year olds are adults and they're legal adults. Um, but the entire system is structured in such a way that it's very difficult not to take out these loans. Um, and, and I think it's very unreasonable to expect 18 year olds to be more fiscally responsible than U.S. Congress that constructed this loan program. Right. Um, and it, so the, the theory that you're mentioning, it used to be called the Bennett hypothesis. It was put forward first in the 80s. Right. Um, by William Bennett, who was then the secretary of education under Ronald Reagan. 
Uh, and he was saying, he said, basically, these subsidized loan programs force tuition up well above inflation. And back then, it was still called a hypothesis, the Bennett hypothesis. It's not a hypothesis anymore. There's been uh, multiple studies that show, um, for one, one, for example, from the New York Federal Reserve, showed that uh, for every dollar of loan um, loan benefits that become available to students, 60 cents uh, goes up on the corresponding tuition, right? So there's a direct inflationary effect. Basically, what's been happening to eggs for the last two years um, in America has been happening to college tuition for a very, very long time. And the culprit really is these government student loans. Yeah, and this is something, you know, that you did a great job talking about in a PragerU video last year, um, which kind of just boils all this down to a short little nugget. And I wonder if we can play that just because I think you were so effective in that. And then we can get more into the into the details. It's hard to imagine how we could screw up higher education any more than we already have, but we're about to if we make student loan forgiveness a reality. There's a Latin phrase that helps explain why. The phrase is qui bono, who benefits. In the case of student loan forgiveness, it's first and foremost the colleges and universities who can charge outrageous tuition largely paid for by student loans. Second, politicians who make cheap promises of debt forgiveness to win votes. And third, students from upper middle class families who would get taxpayers to pay off their student debt. Who doesn't benefit? Everyone else. That includes those who didn't go to college and a new class of suckers, people who went to college and paid off their student loans. Student loan forgiveness is a reverse Robin Hood. It takes from the poor and gives to the rich. But here's the dirty secret. For every dollar of student loan money the government makes available, university tuition goes up by 60 cents. Colleges and universities don't see college loans as a problem. They see a gravy train. Yeah, well, count me in the new class of suckers. <laughs> I just want to say that right there. Um, it's interesting because, you know, having two kids in college and one who graduated from college, I can tell you that all of this money is going to a lot of things that do not directly benefit students. Um, in some cases, they might actually harm students. Um, but there's you know, the entire bureaucratic class at universities, which spends its time bossing around not only students, but the faculty, tenured faculty at these places. Um, and at some places, uh, like Yale University, the, um, the bureaucracy is larger than the faculty. Um, so that's pretty scary, because what do all these people do all day long? I mean, obviously, you need, you know, you, you need some bureaucrats to run the place, but you don't need more than, than the entire faculty, right? I mean, the purpose of a university is to educate, uh, not to administrate, so to speak. So- Or, or political compliance, which unfortunately is a large part of their job now. Right, very large part. Um, yeah, so, so what do we do about that, Inez? I mean, what, how do we break the cycle? Um, well, I mean, preferably, I, I have a, a new essay out, which we'll get to uh, proposing something new, but preferably, and, and the solution that conservatives have, you know, sort of um, advocated for for a long time is to get rid of these subsidized student loan programs. 
over 90% of student loans are now held directly by the taxpayer. They're held by the Department of Education, which, by the way, means for getting forgiveness, even if this, this case is successful and, um, you know, and this particular program is struck down, even if we do nothing and we pass nothing through Congress, the level of defaults that are coming down the pike on these loans they're all going to default on the taxpayer dime because the government is the issuer of these loans. And that's an Obama administration change. It used to be more of a Fannie and Freddie situation where they had some some middlemen. But the government has been subsidizing uh, these student loans for a very long time. And the ideal solution would be to draw down and finally end these subsidies and make colleges sink or swim on their own, make them prove that their product is actually valuable uh, in comparison to the tuition cost that they're charging. Because one of the problems with our current student loan crisis is the value of the degree for most colleges and universities is not enough to then comfortably pay off these loans. That's why we're, we have so much political pressure. Although, just to play devil's advocate for a minute, if you go back to the statistic that May raised at the beginning, if people with bachelor's degrees, any bachelor's degree, right, earn on average 84% more than everybody else, you could argue that, you know, no matter what you learn when you get there, just having the piece of paper um, is still valuable, right? So, I mean, so a lot of times the value of the degree, and this is another reason that it has no business being subsidized in my view, um, I think there's a really good argument to be made that to the extent that college degree is still valuable, it's valuable as an elite networking device, right? Mm. Um, it's it's a signal. It's about who you meet uh, in, in your Harvard class, right? And there is no earthly reason why a mechanic from Ohio should be subsidizing essentially the New York Social Club um, for, for already wealthy people. I agree with that, but presumably somebody who goes to, you know, State University of blah, blah, blah um, is still getting the... 84% salary boost, potentially, right, on average, uh, compared to a mechanic or whatever, or someone who works at Dunkin' Donuts, right? Certainly. Um, so what we're seeing is that that's decreasing over time, right? So we still have, there's still a bump from a bachelor's degree, but it's flattening out, right? So salaries are flattening out for essentially the middle class mm. over time. And then what you're having is a, a sub-elite group that is going very, very it's high. pulling up. up the average. Yeah, it's pulling up the average. Um, so this is all still true, but there are essentially not a lot of great options for people because we've essentially overproduced people with degrees, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that has caused standards to drop. So what having a degree does not mean that you are uh, even basically well-educated anymore. Um, forgetting for a moment about the ideological concerns, we're talking like, you know, functional literacy, right? Mm -hmm. um, so this caused standards to go down over time, but there's just kind of each group has its own, unless you are fabulously wealthy going in, right? Each group is screwed in its own way. So people who choose not to take on this debt, right? They choose not to go to college. Uh, they're now competing for the same exact jobs. And you can see this on uh, places like monster.com, like job websites that 10 or 20 years ago did not require a college degree. The exact same job for inflation adjusted, the exact same salary now has degree required because there's such a glut of people yeah. with degrees. Well, now the person who made the decision not to take out that debt is competing for that same job with someone who did get a degree. Um, and that job hasn't really become more lucrative and it can't support the level of debt. So now instead of getting the same job your dad did um, 30 years ago without a degree, you have to go and get a degree or you're competing against people who have degrees and all that debt. 
So there, it's creating a kind of credentialing treadmill that is really bad for just about everyone except the very wealthy and uh, universities who are getting all of this money up front, right? The students are leaving with debt. The kids who don't go to school are leaving with high school with fewer prospects than they would have had 20 or 30 years ago. And the universities are making bank on the whole process. So while I'd like to see the subsidies cut, um, I actually propose that we start taking the money out of the university coffers. Uh, if we're going to have this kind of bailout, I think it's only fair and just that it comes out from the universities who have benefited from this whole system, rather than the complete unfairness of taking it out of the pockets of people who either didn't go to college, like the majority of Americans, or people who, who uh, like you, Jennifer, the new class of suckers, people who w went ahead and paid their student loans, right, and sometimes sacrificed enormously to do so. It's only fair that the people, if we're gonna, if we're gonna pay out, that the people who pay out um, be the ones who, who benefited enormously from the problem. Let me guess, May, you're also in the new class of suckers. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm like a special breed of sucker, um, which is that <laughs> I privatized my loans maybe six months before the bailout. So like if I would have just waited, I would have gotten free money. And I make under the like the Biden amount. So I would have gotten a 0% interest rate and then I would have gotten uh, free money literally free money. But um, instead, I decided to privatize my loans. And so I owe all of it. Um, there's there's yet another uh, wrinkle, I think, that, that gets lost in all of this with the Biden plan and all the basic unfairness of it. And that's what's happened with the pause. Right. So we're going on two years with this pause. Um, and there's another aspect of this Biden forgiveness plan that drops the um, required IBR, which is income-based repayment. There's also something called pay as you earn, but they're functionally the same program. Of course, it has to be two programs because everything in government has to be complicated. But um, these are functionally, these are programs that peg your payments to your income. So he's dropped the um, expected contribution of people who are in those programs. Um, so, and then the other thing is these pot, this, these pauses, right? For the last two years, have already cost the American taxpayers a hundred billion dollars. So, uh, that's that's I think as much as we've, we've sent to Ukraine, right? Um, and that that has gone completely by the wayside. We've already lost that money. So, um, there, yeah. there's there's a lot of layers of this program. But um, I, I wanted to um, I wanted to move this to maybe the the legal aspects of this. Um, so, May, can you can you walk us through what the challenges to this program were based on? Um, and, and what, how the court seemed or like in terms of reception at oral argument. Yeah. Um, so actually I was personally surprised that the Biden administration decided to say that loan forgiveness was based on COVID, uh, because for everybody, except for like the 10 people wearing a mask still, um, COVID is over. So uh, what, what Biden said is that there's this law called the HEROES Act. The HEROES Act was passed after 9-11. Um, after 9-11, it was seen, oh my goodness, there's a lot of people who are going off uh, to fight for our country. And are they going to still owe student loans every month? Like, how are they going to pay for that? Then you've got all these people living in New York who can't even go to work anymore. I mean, the whole city is, uh, is in disarray. So the HEROES Act said for certain groups of people, uh, you can have waivers or modifications of student loan programs. So who are those certain groups of people? That's people on active duty or 
people uh, who live in a disaster area, so that's your New York people, or people who suffer direct economic hardship as a direct result of war or other military operation or national emergency. Okay, so these are like not just, hey, go give out you know free loans. You have to fit one of those things. Okay, so if you fit one of those things, what can be done? Nowhere does it say you can cancel student loans. If you look at all the congressmen talking about the bill, none of them assumed that you could uh, cancel student loans. They were all talking about, well, is the interest going to accrue? Um, you can waive or modify provisions. So some of those provisions are basically uh, how you're going to calculate your income. Maybe you can look at the year before rather than your current year. Or if you're in some sort of program that requires you to be a teacher for 10 years in order to pay off your student loans, but you went and fought uh, for two of those years, we're not going to make you have to teach for 10 years uh, continuously. You can do you know, four, take your two break, and then do six. So those are waivers and modifications. I actually thought uh, personally that... Uh, the strongest argument was giving a loan forgiveness to every single person who's, you know, ever walked on this earth does not fit one of those criteria. It doesn't fit, you know, the armed armed services. It doesn't fit disaster area. It doesn't fit those types of things. But so the justice is- like The I argument is based, that you would make is basically, we are no longer in a state of emergency. Even though he's using the HEROES Act to do this, he did it in what, August or something of 2022. Um, and so, by definition, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. Yeah. If you're living in Europe right now, you're not in a disaster area, you get your student loans forgiven. Direct hardship as a direct result, direct, direct, direct. No, he's just saying the pandemic existed and therefore you're you must be harmed, even though actually people with bachelor's degrees ended up better because of the pandemic, uh, as we could all work on our laptops at home and the people right. who didn't have uh, bachelor's degrees had to, you know, probably go to work. So um, but the justices, I think, much more clung on to waive or modify. So the statute says you can only waive or modify provisions, not create a whole new loan cancellation program. So it seemed to me like that was the route that they wanted to go to say that this program is illegal. Right. I know so, that a lot of legal commentary have has focused on whether anyone could sue to challenge. Um, has anyone actually been harmed? When you're just giving away free money, no one's harmed. So no one can, can go to court to challenge. That's the standing issue. That's the standing so, issue. Right. So the, the, the Supreme Court heard arguments on Tuesday, was it last week? Um, and there are two cases, and one of them is brought by a number of states, and a good portion of the argument focused on whether the states um, are the proper parties to this uh, case. And um, so what did, I mean, I don't know if you listened in on the I argument. Did. What did you make of of that, the standing piece of it, and what, what could you glean from the justices' questions there? So the private party said that they had a right to comment on a proposed rule. So they they weren't they said that their harm was like I wanted to participate and you guys just passed this program without asking me. 
I, so it was the technical administrative law point. Yeah, I don't feel like the justices are going to bite on that. Um, but the states, I think, were was a little bit closer. So Missouri has its own student loan servicer that's kind of a wing of Missouri. And so the question is, is it actually Missouri? Because if so, the student loan servicer is going to lose thousands and thousands of accounts and lose money. Or is this wing of Missouri kind of its own thing has, you know, and really is not the same thing as the state of Missouri. I, I actually think that's a closer call. A lot of the pundits were saying, oh yeah, the justices definitely like found that there was standing. Eh, I don't know. I think that's tough. Hmm. So a lot of the questions, um, outside the standing context focused on separation of powers issues and something that's called the major questions doctrine. Can you explain what the major questions doctrine is? And also, I know, I think you were involved in that piece of the case. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, what your role is there. Yeah, so major questions is to normal English speakers, the <laughs> idea that if Congress is gonna do something major, they're gonna say it out loud. So they're not going to what we call hide elephants in mouse holes is another way to phrase the major questions doctrine. So if Congress had meant to create a loan cancellation authority, then you definitely see it in there. There's no way they would have just uh, put it in through vague language. So two recent major questions cases, one was the vaccine mandate case. So uh, the Biden administration said, hey, the Department of Labor, they have the ability to regulate hard hats at work. If they can regulate hard hats at work, then certainly they can make you take a vaccine. And the Supreme Court said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Forcing vaccination on the American worker is far different than saying you should generally have safe workplaces. If Congress had meant to say you can force someone to get vaccinated to come to work, they would have said so. So uh, I think you saw a similar thing with the eviction moratorium. If you can stop people from evicting people from their homes, Congress is going to say so. You're not going to hide it in some obscure, never used public health statute. So major questions doctrine, very hot right now at the court. Everybody loves it. It's in everyone's arguments. Um, and I think that there will be major question uh, vibes in the opinion for sure. And major questions doctrine is really um, a doctrine related to the separation of powers, right? That the notion that we have these three branches of government, um, Congress is supposed to prescribe the legislation and the administrative agencies are really just supposed to implement it, not expand upon it or grow it or interpret it you know, beyond what it actually says. Um, I think we have a few clips of oral argument. Why don't we tee up the question from the Chief Justice on this issue? I just have um, a question on the, on the major questions doctrine, and I wanted just a little bit background for why I want to get your views on how it applies. You're, you're arguing here that um, no notice and comment proceeding was required before the action taken on the half trillion dollars of loans, uh, and that because of your view that the president can act unilaterally, that there was no role for Congress to play in this either. 
And at least in this case, given your view of standing, there's no role for us to play in this, in this either. Now, we take very seriously the idea of uh, separation of powers and that power should be divided uh, to prevent its uh, uh, abuse. And there are many procedural niceties uh, that have to be followed for the same purpose. Um, the case reminds me of the one we had a few years ago under a different administration where the administration tried acting on its own to cancel the DREAMers program, uh, and we blocked that effort. And I just wonder, given the posture of the case and given our historic concern about uh, the separation of powers, you would recognize at least that this is a case that presents extraordinarily serious, important issues about the role of Congress and about the role that we should exercise in scrutinizing that? significant enough that the major questions doctrine ought to be considered implicated? One of the things I thought was interesting about how the SG answered a lot of these questions was um, her emphasis on the economic part, uh, sort of almost to the exclusion of all else. Um, And I was actually on another webcast earlier today talking about whether the major questions doctrine applies to things the Department of Education has done uh, with respect to Title IX. And the person I was on with was saying, well, there's really no economic component there. It's not like it's dealing with, you know, overtaking a major sector of the economy or something like that. Um, But on the flip side, it, it can't be really that anything that's in the news, anything that's controversial, anything that seems important to some people is a major question, right? So does it have to cost a trillion dollars to be a major question? Or does it just have to be something that Tucker Carlson's talking about on the television, right? Like where's, how major is major? Yeah, the major questions doctrine, you're right. So I think, you know, there's an argument that if it's just a bet, it's just a giveaway of money, uh, then then that isn't an, a major question. You're not hurting anyone. There's not sort of these big policy questions, divisions. It's just free money. Um, but I I think there's a problem with that in that because we don't have taxpayer standing, because taxpayers can't say, hey, I see that my money is being spent towards something unconstitutional. You can't sue there. That to me makes me want to say that you you really should be able to point to like crazy huge expenditures of taxpayer money um, as a reason why it's easier to either get in the door or win your argument. So money has to come into play somewhere whether that's going to be uh, sort of rethinking who can get in the door to sue, whether that's going to be a thumb on the scale for major questions, but there can't just be constant giveaways of money with sort of uh, no, no one cares. Um, so I have a question. I mean, this seems to be a trend uh, in, in for this court in the last few um, sessions, right? Which is re-examining the relationship and the powers of the federal agencies vis-a-vis Congress um, and and the court themselves, you know, so how does this, how does this doctrine fit in, say, with some of the challenges 
uh, on, on administrative grounds, which this case has as well, or um, some of the um, other kind of Chevron deference questions that the court has sort of nibbled around in the last couple of sessions. I mean, where is the general direction um, of this court when looking at this very expansive agency power that we've we've really it, it has a lot of precedent, right? Because it's been around for quite some time, but they seem to be very cautious about it. Yeah, um, you know, as the like former Fed here, I uh, I think that, and you could see it on the bench too, because people like uh, Roberts and Kavanaugh, although Roberts really was not a fan of the administrative state here, tend to give more leeway to the executive branch versus people like Gorsuch and Alito and Thomas tend to not. And I think it's because when you're in uh, the administration, you really see Congress isn't doing anything. The other side is definitely going to uh, F around. So, so am I. And I do think that the courts are concerned about it, but they really don't know what to do. I think nationwide injunctions is really uh, emblematic of this because nationwide injunctions very much curb the power of agencies. So on so one hand, just explain briefly what a nationwide injunction. Yeah, nationwide injunction. So when I was in uh, the Trump administration, basically every policy that we would do, uh, let's just say um, a random asylum rule. Okay, this is affecting thousands and thousands of people, you know, all across the southern border. But one judge in D.C. can say nope. You cannot apply that rule to anyone ever anywhere. Um, so not just the person who brings the case, but the judge is sa saying, basically putting up a stop sign to the administrative agency or to the executive branch saying, do not pass go, like we're, we're halting this. Exactly. So you would think that in order to curb agency power, you would want sort of a robust use of that stoppage power um but you know but at the same time that conservatives have really been wary of nationwide injunctions so i don't think the court really knows how to treat agencies what to do with agency power um you know what sort of doctrines it wants to use where the limits are i, I just think it's a very confused area uh what you just said i think would make a lot more sense to me if we had uh more unitary executive right like if there were clear lines of accountability and okay so maybe we're we just live in a more cesarean time right for the for the 20th century on um we have we live under a quote-unquote imperial presidency but at least there would be elections every four years but i mean the reality and you, you know this better than anyone coming from from the inside of the trump administration right um, the reality is our agencies operate oftentimes without reference even to the elected president let alone to Congress, right? So um, that, 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 that's, that is my big worry is there's like, there's very little accountability. Um, and, and so the court reintroducing some, I'm, I'm a very big, big fan of, but um, moving on the, the major questions doctrine, I'm gonna tee up some more discussion from this time from Justices uh, Sotomayor and Alito on the question. General, the amount at issue, um, the chief mentioned the quarter of trillion dollars or the half a trillion dollars. Um, how do you deal with that? Because 
that seems to favor the argument that this is a major question. Yes, Justice Sotomayor. So, of course, we acknowledge that this is an economically significant action. But I think that that can't possibly be the sole measure for triggering application of the major questions doctrine. In prior cases, the court has pointed to economic and political significance, but it's also reviewed a litany of additional factors that have demonstrated that based on common sense understandings of how Congress is likely to legislate, the agency is claiming extravagant regulatory authority that it doesn't actually have. And I think if the court were to just look at costs alone, it would take the major questions doctrine outside of that extraordinary case because national policies these days frequently do involve more substantial costs or trigger political controversy. Here, we think that there are any number of additional factors that demonstrate that this does not fit the major questions paradigm. And the first thing I would point to is that this is not an assertion of regulatory authority at all. This is the administration of a benefits program. And the court in prior cases has recognized that you using common sense interpretations of understanding how Congress would legislate, Congress might pause before empowering the executive to engage in extravagant regulation with the corresponding cost to individual liberty interests. But in the context of a benefits program, there's not that same reason to hesitate about what Congress might have intended because it's perfectly logical for Congress to broadly empower the executive to provide benefits, especially in a crisis situation or an emergency like we've seen with COVID-19. So she's, she's saying basically, well, it can't just be about money, right? can't just be about money. It's got to be this four-factor test and blah, 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 blah. And then I'm on this other podcast earlier today where the, the professor's saying it's all about money. And these Title IX regulations, you know, don't really cost a lot. Therefore, it's not a major question. So I don't know. Which is it? I guess it's both. I don't know. I, I think that you know, when I think about major questions doctrine and sort of its roots in maybe like cigarette uh, regulations, um, this is something that the American people really cared about and that Congress had the opportunity and actually did think about. So when I think about major questions, I think about, is this something that is like top 10 issue that Congress has been thinking about and debating? Um, and I think for Title IX, gender identity, that type of thing, yes. It is, it, it is a real priority, something like student loans. Yes, this is something that Congress has debated. There have been bills uh, presented. There have been, uh, you know, debates in Congress about it. So I think that's I an important piece of the analysis because in the West Virginia versus EPA case, one of the key points was that, look, this is something that Congress considered and rejected. And so you, you the agency, can't just then go, okay, well, we'll do it. Right. Like Obama with the phone and the pen. Congress won't do it. I will. Um, and I think the court was really saying there that it can't just be a way to complete um, and move forward policies that which the elected representatives of the people have decided against. Yeah. So uh, it, it's going to be difficult. Where's that line of, you know, is this something that's actually on Congress's mind? You know, are you really taking it over? But I think there are some clear, obvious examples of that. And I would say that the student loans case is an obvious major questions case. Um, so with that, let me ask you as we wrap up, May, um, what are your predictions, not only for the outcome of this case, do you think the program will be struck down, 
but also what grounds you think, because some of them you seemed a little more skeptical than others, like some of the standing questions. Um, what grounds do you think if, if it is struck down will be struck down on? So I think uh, they will find the states have standing just barely. Um, I, the private party, no. And then slam dunk easy the, you know, this is not a legal program. The basis, I think the narrowest basis is, oh, it's not a waiver or modification, in which case this this case has no significance to any other case. Or um, I think maybe more likely is they do a broader, this is a major questions case, and then continue to flesh that out. Because last year they had a big major questions case. People have a lot of questions about it. Everyone's putting it in their arguments, and they might want to uh, help give some guidance as to what that means. Well, we can we can hope this this uh, program with so many issues, both policy and legal, uh, will be will be gone soon, uh, thanks to the Supreme Court. But that only leaves the question open, I think, for uh, both the left and the right as to how to solve the underlying student loan debt crisis and problem. So um, we'll continue on that front in the more appropriate forum, I hope, uh, the political one. So with that, uh, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of At the Bar. At the Bar is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. Um, and we hope to see you at our, our next At the Bar, where we'll be talking about whatever is on, on deck uh, and in the news at that moment at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. Thanks very much. <laughs>